Today's scripture reading is from the end of Exodus 6 and beginning of chapter 7. On the day the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I am telling you. But Moses replied in the Lord's presence, since I am such a poor speaker, how will Pharaoh listen to me? The Lord answered Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and Aaron, your brother, will be your prophet. You must say whatever I command you. Then Aaron, your brother, must declare it to Pharaoh, so that he will let the Israelites go from his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. Pharaoh will not listen to you, but I will put my hand into Egypt and bring the military divisions of my people, the Israelites, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the Israelites from among them. So Moses and Aaron did this. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. This is the word of the Lord. I want to begin with a question this morning, a question I want you all to ponder. Who or what do you tend to listen to? Now, now to be clear, I'm not throwing out an icebreaker question here. I'm not talking about if you listen to Taylor Swift's new album, Midnight, when it released at midnight this Thursday. I didn't listen in case you're wondering. What I mean, as you consider how you make decisions, how much money you spend on a house, the type of relationship you will have with someone before you get married, the type of relationship you will have with someone when you get married, the practices and foundation for how you parent and educate children, if you have them. What to think through when you go through hardship. What tends to have the strongest voice in your life? Of course, considering what or who you listen to as you consider decisions is one thing. Who or what do you listen to when it comes to deeper questions of meaning and purpose in life. As you consider how you view yourself and even how you view God, do you listen to the voices you find in the pages of Scripture, the very word of God? Or do you listen to other voices? For many, rather than listen to the words of Scripture, rather than listen to the author of Scripture, we tend to listen to voices we encounter in the broader culture, leading us to believe things like our worth and value is determined by what others thinking, think of us, leading us to believe our purpose in life, the thing that we should care most about, is to experience personal happiness on earth. I should expect to be happy. I should avoid pain, and I should do what brings me pleasure. I should be the person I want to be, rather than listening to God to understand the person he designed me to be. Sometimes these voices are even reflected in church culture. If you want something, go for it. And if God doesn't want you to have it, he'll close the door. I should, I should determine the boundaries and parameters for how I live. These are the kind of things we adopt rather than listening to the scriptures to understand the boundaries and parameters God has laid out for how I am to live. 
So if you have your Bibles with you or a Bible app, go ahead and open it up to Exodus chapter 7. As I mentioned, we're considering an extended passage of Scripture this morning, detailing what is commonly referred to as the plagues. Now, to be clear, these are not biological plagues like COVID or influenza or the bubonic plague. That word plague in the past in English, it meant to strike or to blow. God is delivering a series of strikes or blows to his enemies. Now, there are actually 10 plagues recorded in Exodus. And while Pastor Chris did delegate to me a tall task, preaching on four chapters of Scripture, he did spare me the task of preaching on all 10 plagues. I only have to preach on nine. He graciously took the last one. And it's going it's to make more sense next week why that is the case and why the 10th plague may be deserving of multiple sermons. As we engage the plagues, the story of the plagues, we're going to find on display this question. What voice do you listen to? On the one hand, you have Moses and Aaron. They are reluctant but they listen and respond to the voice of the Lord. On the other, you have Pharaoh, supreme ruler of much of the civilized world. He will refuse to listen to and surrender to the Lord. Pharaoh represents rebellion and corruption. To get the attention of such individuals, God will wage war against the voices Pharaoh tends to listen to. The voices that matter most to the Egyptians. And through these plagues, God makes it clear. God defeats his enemies. That's actually the title of my sermon this morning. God defeats his enemies. Now, if you're less familiar with the book of Exodus and where we're at, let me get you caught up. The section we're looking at this morning is one of the more famous. It's detailed in movies like the animated Prince of Egypt and the classic film The Ten Commandments. What's, what's going on up till now? The supreme ruler of Egypt, Pharaoh, is threatened by how the Israelites are growing and multiplying. Rather than being seen as a blessing because of their numbers, because of how they are prospering, he views them as a people who could undermine his rule, threaten his power, and threaten his people. And so to, do, to, do, excuse me, to decrease their numbers, he does three things. One, He enslaves them and makes their life miserable. When that doesn't work, two, he tells the Hebrew midwives to kill baby boys when they are born. When that doesn't work, three, Pharaoh tells his people to throw baby boys that have been born into the Nile River where they will certainly drown and die. Now, one of these Israelites, set to be murdered at the hands of Pharaoh and the Egyptians at birth, is instead rescued. And he is miraculously raised in the house of Pharaoh. His name is Moses, and he later rises to prominence among God's people. Although, like I said, he's a reluctant leader, providing many reasons why God should choose someone else. But ultimately, He submits and surrenders. He and his brother Aaron, as the Lord commands, then come to approach Pharaoh. 
When they do, the text records this exchange. Later, Moses and Aaron went in and said to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival for me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh responded, Who is the Lord that I should obey him by letting Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and besides, I will not let Israel go. Whose voice do you tend to listen to? When you encounter difficult decisions, when you are confronted with challenging circumstances, when you are thinking about deep questions of meaning and purpose, Pharaoh is demonstrating what it means to silence the voice of the Lord. He's saying, I will not look to listen to the voice of the Lord. And even if I hear it, even if I heard it, I won't obey it. I won't let Israel go. Pharaoh is listening to some voice, maybe a a voice from within, but more so the voices of the gods of Egypt that tell him he is like a god. He is the supreme ruler of the land. That's the voice that matters to him. So Pharaoh increases the burden of the Israelites, leading them to grumble and Moses to question his calling. But God is about to show the Israelites those gods that Pharaoh listens to, they are not worthy of worship. They are not voices worth trusting in. The living God is far greater and far more worthy of worship. God defeats his enemies. That's the setup of where we're going this morning. Since we're covering four chapters, rather than providing a verse-by-verse explanation, which could take all day or many days, I just want to draw out a couple big themes and give you a taste of what Moses is drawing us into. So beginning at the end of chapter 6 and beginning of chapter 7, which was read earlier, the, the Lord reiterates what he has said he will do. How Moses and Aaron are to go to Pharaoh, and they're to tell him, let my people go. He tells them Pharaoh's not going to listen. So there's going to be a series of signs and wonders, what God calls great acts of judgment. Those are the plagues. They're designed to demonstrate the superiority of the Lord. So the nine plagues leading up to the tenth, if you look at your Bible, you'll, you'll see that they're recorded in three cycles of three. So the first three are grouped together, four through six are part of the second cycle, and seven through nine are part of the third cycle. I can't tell you why there are three cycles of three. Maybe it's simply a way for the story to emphasize uh, what has occurred, the way someone tells a story after the fact. Uh, Maybe it is connected to how there were three ways that Pharaoh tried to decrease the prominence of the Israelites by enslaving them and putting to death their baby boys. Or maybe that whole idea, don't make me count to three, isn't just something parents came up with. Maybe there is something supernatural about the number three when dealing with disobedience. Just kidding. So let's look at some of what happens in that first cycle of plagues to better understand what similarities um, makes the cycles similar. So let's start with how God instructs Moses to confront Pharaoh before the first plague plague. Go to Pharaoh in the morning. When you see him walking out to the water, stand ready to meet him by the bank of the Nile. Take in your hand the staff 
that turned into a snake. That's something that we didn't look at, but that is a sign that Moses and Aaron did earlier. Take in your hand the staff that turned into a snake. Tell him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to tell you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But so far, you have not listened. So prior to plague number one, plague number four, and plague number seven, what you'll see is there is a direct confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh. And that consistently occurs in the morning. First on the banks of the Nile, then the text says as Pharaoh goes out to the water, which is probably the Nile prior to plague number four, and prior to to plague number seven, the text simply says, in the morning. Pharaoh is consistently challenged at the beginning of the day. This is what the Lord says, let my people go. So you know that I am the Lord. So you know that I am more powerful than any of the voices you listen to today. There will be some acts that bring destruction. What you trust in will let you down. The first plague turns the water of the Nile, the lifeblood of the people of Egypt, into actual blood. Or excuse me, the Nile is the lifeline of the people of Egypt. The first plague turns that into blood, which makes it difficult to drink and water the land and the livestock. The fourth plague brings swarms of flies that bring pain and suffering. And the seventh brings hail, destroying the grain that's growing in the fields. In each of these plagues, Moses confronts Pharaoh. God, through Moses, speaks to Pharaoh, emphasizing he is not listening to the voice of the Lord, and an extended account of the plague or judgment is recorded. That's what we see in the first plague in each cycle. Now let's look at plague number two and identify some of the similarities in plague number two, number five, and number eight, the second in each of the cycles. Beginning with chapter eight, verse one. Then the Lord said to Moses, go in to Pharaoh and tell him, this is what the Lord says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. But if you refuse to let them go, then I will plague all your territory with frogs. So prior to the second plague in each cycle, there is an exchange between Moses and Pharaoh, but it does not take place in the morning. These confrontations consistently take place in the house of Pharaoh. Each continues to bring some sort of hardship or actual death. The second plague involves frogs. They swarm out of the Nile River onto the land. The fifth plague involves the death of Egyptian livestock, which is through a severe plague. That's the only actual biological plague. And the eighth plague involves locusts covering the face of the land so that no one can see the land. Okay? To conclude each of these plagues, at least the frogs and the locusts, Pharaoh comes to a place where he promises, I will let the Lord's people go. But he doesn't stay there. He later relents after the hardship or the consequence is removed and he hardens his heart. The narrative around the third plague in each of the cycles So plague number three, six, and nine is much more brief. Here is how the text describes what happens leading up to plague number three. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the land and it will become gnats throughout the land of Egypt. So before these plagues, there is no exchange between Moses and Pharaoh recorded. In plague number three, the dust of the ground becomes gnats. In number six, six, the soot in the oven is thrown up in the air and becomes boils on the skin of the people. And in number nine, darkness covers the land of Egypt. Each seems to happen abruptly, without warning. It's like the Lord is turning up the volume when Pharaoh is saying, I can't hear you, and I won't obey you. Not getting an advanced warning is sometimes the way it works when people listen to the voices of other gods. Sometimes there are people telling them, warning them, hey, that's a foolish choice. You're not listening to the voice of the Lord. There are going to be consequences for engaging in such a foolish trajectory. But sometimes people choose a sinful or foolish trajectory, and rather than words of warning, they simply experience the consequences. Pharaoh does not always get the benefit of an advanced warning. So there there are some of these similarities in each of these cycles, but there are also differences that distinguish each of the cycles. Emphasizing how the, the plagues are escalating in nature. For example, as the plagues progress to the third cycle, Their destructive nature is emphasized. The the text says things like, heavy hail will fall, such has never been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. And in the plague of locusts, locusts shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and all the Egyptians as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. That last cycle, plague seven through nine, it's a comp comprehensive, destructive nature. In the first cycle, the plagues are less severe. So much so, one of the things you'll notice is that the sorcerers of Egypt are actually able to replicate, to some degree, the signs and wonders of what Moses and Aaron are doing. Now, we're not sure how they do that, if that's through some trickery or through some demonic forces, but they turn water into blood. And they have frogs come out of the Nile. They do that until we get to the end of the third cycle, or to to the end of the first cycle, plague number three, when the text records this. The magicians tried to produce gnats using their occult practices, but they could not. The gnats remained on people and animals. This is the finger of God, the magician said to Pharaoh. But Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. We'll come back to this profession. This is the finger of God in a moment. But for now, the text is making clear the sorcerers have insufficient power to trust in. God defeats his enemies. Another thing, as the cycle of the plague progresses, we see that the Israelites do not experience the same consequences as Pharaoh in Egypt. Beginning with plague number four, the first plague in the second cycle, there is a setting apart of God's people. Here's chapter eight, verses 22 and 23. But on that day, I will give special treatment to the land of Goshen where my people are living. No flies will be there. 
This way you will know that I, the Lord, am in the land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. The sign will take place tomorrow. So, so sometimes consequences for rejecting the voice of God are experienced by everyone. Christians experience consequences for others not listening to the voice of God, even when they are listening to God's voice. The sins of others produce difficulty, and not just difficulty for the individual committing the sin. Sin brings difficulty and death to a broader community and a broader people. At the same time, God's people oftentimes do not experience the same consequences associated with sinful practices. When we live our lives, raise our kids, when we live as a community, listening to the voice of God, we experience blessing. We prosper in ways the broader community does not. We do not experience God's judgment for sin. In many ways, others experience such judgment. As his people, we are set apart. Now, part of the progression of the plagues is a progression we see taking place in how Pharaoh and his people respond. I mentioned at the end of the first cycle, after the plague of the gnats, it ends with a bit of a profession. Pharaoh's sorcerers recognize what Pharaoh struggles to acknowledge. This is the finger of God. This is not our idols. This is not our Egyptian gods. This is the living God who's doing this. The action of the living God has caught the attention of the magicians. They are listening. And so they say this to Pharaoh, but he still does not listen. In the face of evidence confronting his worldview, his heart is too hard to hear. We often think in the face of evidence, if the research proves something from Scripture, if we say the right things, if we're winsome in the right way, people will trust in the Lord. People will believe what the Bible says. The account of Pharaoh in the book of Exodus should affirm something different. When individuals do not want to surrender to the Lord, when their heart is hard, even in the face of evidence that challenges his or her worldview, when what they serve and surrender to is being revealed to be insufficient, evidence may not ultimately transform their heart. Pharaoh continues to harden his heart. Pharaoh will not surrender what gives him power. Even if the Lord is more powerful, he will still do what he wants to do. The Israelites are enslaved to Pharaoh, but there is a sense that Pharaoh is enslaved to possessing the Israelites. Surrendering the Israelites would mean he is not the most powerful. He is not willing to be humbled in that way. Of course, we will see next week that he eventually comes to the place of surrendering the Israelites, but not so much surrendering to God. As Pharaoh's disposition progresses, there is something in his dialogue we need to observe. After the seventh plague, after hail descends down, destroying the, cro the crops, the text records this. Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron. I have sinned this time, he, sent to them. he said to them. 
The Lord is the righteous one, and I, my people, are the guilty one. Make an appeal to the Lord. There has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't need to stay any longer. While Pharaoh submits with his words, he does not submit with his heart. He reverses course and takes back his pledge. And so then, after the eighth plague, the text records, Pharaoh urgently sent for Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Please forgive my sin once more and make an appeal to the Lord your God so that he will just take this death away from me. See, a person who is prideful and arrogant, they can say, I'm sorry. A person who is prideful and arrogant can long and plead to have consequences removed. But what they can't do is come to a place of surrender. They cannot admit they are not in control. And so they can't submit to the living God. That's actually the big idea this story, one of the big ideas this story is drawing us into. More than being sorry for sin, God's people submit and surrender to him as Lord. Pharaoh confesses he is sorry. He surrenders to the Lord to forgive his sin and to take away the consequences of his sin, but he does not submit to the Lord as ruler. He remains defiant. Some of us are like this. We come to the place we recognized how we sinned in one situation, how we lied, how we manipulated, how we stole, and we want relief from the consequences of those sins, but we do not want to surrender. You do not want to admit that you are not in control. You want to maintain power and control. You struggle to recognize how more than sinning once or twice, you are a sinner. You don't just get angry. You are an angry person. You don't just manipulate. You are manipulative. You are a person who worships power or comfort or self. It is not one simple act that you need to say you are sorry for. You need to surrender who you have become and submit your will to another. The progression of the cycles highlights the insufficiency of the power of the Egyptian magicians. It highlights how the Lord's people are set apart and it highlights the extent of the Lord's power and strength. Now, I know some of you have questions about how these plagues happened. Were they supernatural? Or, or can they be explained by some sort of natural cause? Some of you have questions about why these nine. You have encountered material from Bible studies or commentaries that says each of these nine plagues involves an attack on a particular Egyptian god. That, that may be true, but I will tell you it's, it is not a view adopted comprehensively by biblical scholars. There's some debate, and it doesn't need to be true. In Exodus 12, at the culmination of the 10th plague, God does say he is, he is bringing judgment on the gods of the Egyptians. But, but that does not mean it has to be a one plague to one god kind of thing. 
Now, some of you have questions about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. What is the source of Pharaoh's heart being hardened? Is it either Pharaoh or the Lord? If the answer is Pharaoh, his heart being hardened is simply him exercising free will. Free will is the source of him being hardened or softened. His destiny is the product of his individual choices. And if that's true, God has little control and power over human beings. But if the answer is God, well, then Pharaoh is simply a puppet. He is a victim to however God is pulling his strings. The answer the text draws us into doesn't seem to be either Pharaoh or God here, but both Pharaoh and God. Sometimes the text says Pharaoh hardened his heart, and sometimes the text says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And we very much see God hardening Pharaoh's heart as Pharaoh trusts in other gods, as he relents in submitting and surrendering to the living of God. We have a high view of God's sovereignty and God's power and God's control at First City Church. But that does not mean we believe individual choices do not matter. Pharaoh is not an innocent victim here. He is not someone who happens to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. He is a willing actor. He is making individual choices to throw babies into the Nile River and to oppress a people. And yet God is sovereign and in control over it all. So, as you reflect on the story of the plagues, let me caution you. If you are someone who is caught up in believing that miracles cannot happen, thinking through some sort of natural cause for each plague, you will miss what God's word is teaching. If you are someone who is caught up in the technicalities of each plague, which Egyptian god is being defeated, you will miss what God's word is teaching. If you are someone who is caught up in the question, what is the source of Pharaoh's heart being hardened? You're going to miss what God's word is teaching. The plagues demonstrating the plagues demonstrate that God's is powerful and he has rule and reign over all of creation. The plagues in many ways are acts of decreation. Genesis records how creation progressed from disorder to order. The plagues involve what is ordered becoming disordered. In response to, to the world being ordered, people like the Egyptians, they tend to worship creation rather than creator. This was the nature of many of the Egyptian gods. They were connected to creation. God is unraveling what the Egyptians worship. So the separation of land and sea is wiped away when the frogs from the Nile, from the sea, swarm onto the land. The dust of the ground that God has used to form life back in Genesis 1, that dust is now used to create gnats that attack life. In the ninth plague, the plague of darkness, let there be light is replaced by let there be darkness. God is demonstrating he is more powerful than Pharaoh. He is demonstrating he is sovereign over all creation. God defeats his enemies. 
But if that's what these events were intended to teach, what is the story teaching us as God's people? Is Moses simply recording events detailing how God defeats his enemies to demonstrate God's power and strength, or is there a more specific application here? To answer that question, I want to conclude with a bit of a thought exercise. Imagine yourself having lived among a people who worshipped all sorts of alternative gods. Rather than worship the living God, they worshipped creation. They worshipped political power. They worshipped status and wealth and sex and prominence in the community. And imagine yourself having experienced rescue and deliverance from worship and idolatry of such things. You have set, been set free from being enslaved to a people worshiping such false gods. You have seen and experienced God's power. And then years later, you encounter hardship and trial. You are not experiencing the type of life you thought would be associated with victory and deliverance. And so you consider, maybe those alternative gods, maybe they're not so bad after all. Maybe they have some power, some ability to fulfill that I'm missing. This is the circumstance of the Israelites when Moses recorded the book of Exodus. They have experienced deliverance from the Egyptians, but they have not yet entered the promised land and instead are wandering in the wilderness without the, the presence of the Nile River, without the presence of the gods of Egypt providing safety and security for the Israelites, many were tempted to think the Lord was insufficient. So many wonder, is the living God, the God of our ancestors, is he worthy of worship? Is he worth listening to? As God's people wander in the wilderness and consider the story of the plagues, they are forced to wrestle with a question. What voices do they listen to? Are the voices they listen to prone to align with God's enemies? Or are the voices they listen to prone to lead them to surrender and submit to the living God? The story is teaching God's, God's people that God defeats his enemies. He is more powerful than alternate gods and idols of worship. God has the power to deliver and rescue Yet we, as God's people, even us, we are prone to reject his voice. Listening to the Lord is connected to life and flourishing. Listening to distorted lords is associated with death. People of First City Church, that scenario of what the Israelites found themselves in probably isn't too hard for many of you to imagine. Because it very much describes situations and circumstances we find ourselves in today. When people today, they don't, they don't worship the Nile River or a sun god, but they worship all sorts of other things. They are enslaved to idols. They worship social media platforms like Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok to have a better self-image. They seek to have their identity affirmed by the attention of peers or through sexual encounters, 
or by way of being in relationship with a particular man or a particular woman to give them self-worth and meaning. They worship the size of their financial portfolio and the size of their bank accounts to give them a sense of security and power. They worship substances like alcohol and marijuana and prescription medications to feel better about themselves, to escape the pain, to experience some sort of pleasure. And they worship politicians on the right or on the left or political figures free from being defined by a particular party as some sort of savior to affirm their agenda. You have been delivered from being enslaved to such gods and such idols. You have been rescued and redeemed and yet it is tempting to return to listening to those voices, to find meaning and purpose. Depending on where you're at this morning, the the story of the plagues could be good news to you or it could be bad news. Bad news in the sense, if you are trusting in the power of self rather than the power of Christ, if the voices you are listening to affirm that you should serve self, if you're someone who is simply sorry for your sin, but rejecting, surrendering, and submitting to Christ as Lord, you are trusting in a defeated enemy. You may have your pride, but you will be miserable. The story of the plagues is good news in the sense, if you are tired, or you have grown tired of being enslaved to things of this world, if you are tired or have grown tired of being oppressed by evil and dark forces, God defeats his enemies. This was true for the Israelites, and it is even more true for us who come after Christ and are in Christ, as Ian reminded us earlier. These are the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 4 as he reads from the book of Isaiah, as he announces his ministry. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In the story of the plagues, God liberates the oppressed through the ministry of Moses. For you and I living today, God liberates the oppressed through the ministry of Christ. He has set us free from being enslaved to the power of darkness. In Christ, God defeats the corrupt. God defeats the, the, the evil. God is victorious over those who rebel against him. In Christ, God sees those who are enslaved and are at a place they surrender their pride and submit to him. Moses was this deliverer that pointed to an ultimate deliverer. God defeats his enemies in Christ. As such, may we be a people who listen to him. Let's pray.